Hi, I'm Marcus Peter Rempel. And I'm Alana Lewandowski. Welcome to The Ferment. Something good is rising. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Ferment. My name is Marcus Peter Rempel. It's Maundy Thursday 2020 as I record this. On Maundy Thursday 2019, Alan and I had a conversation with Lydia Wiley Kellerman, uh, the new editor of G's Magazine, uh, after Jesus' relocation from Winnipeg, Manitoba, our home province, uh, to Detroit, Michigan. And uh, yeah, it was a, a very interesting conversation. Uh, we talked about uh, the on-the-ground activism that uh, Lydia and her, her parents have a long history of in Detroit. We talked about water issues in Detroit. And uh, I, yeah, it does strike me that in the midst of the crisis that we're in, where some public systems are rallying around the, us in, in helpful ways, and some public systems are really failing us in very significant ways, uh, and all of us are trying to figure out, you know, where to uh, cooperate with good faith orders of, of good government and, uh, and where to continue to ask questions uh, in a moment when uh, all kinds of civil liberties are being limited and, and we're, we're just needing to find ways to enact solidarity in new and creative ways. It does seem to me that Lydia's story and the story of her community in Detroit is, is really relevant. So... A blessed Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and and Easter to everyone. And uh, yeah, thanks for checking out the ferment. Uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation with uh, myself, Alana, and Lydia Wiley Kellerman. Take care. Lydia Wiley Kellerman, welcome to the ferment. Uh, so great to have you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we're we're excited to talk to you. Um, for our listeners who, who may not have heard your name before, Lydia Wiley Kellerman is co-editor of the blog RadicalDiscipleship.net, a national coordinator of Word and World, uh, which is a, a people school, I love that title, um, bridging the gap between seminary, sanctuary, and the street, maybe even also, and the field, we'll talk about that in a, in a bit, and the newly minted editor of G's Magazine, uh, which has uh, recently flown the coop of Winnipeg to be nested in Detroit. So, yeah, it's great to have you. Thank you. Lydia, tell us something about the place where you are touching the earth today. Hmm. I touch the earth on Larkin Street in southwest Detroit which is Anishinaabe land that runs along the Detroit River. And I, I live in a neighborhood that I grew up in, uh, which is a really wonderful place to be, knowing that my kids are sticking the same dirt in their mouths that I did and learning to ride their bikes <laughs> on the same uh, sidewalks and the same cracks. And our house is surrounded by apricot trees and apples and cherry trees and a dozen chickens and I live down the street from my dad and across the street from my sister and in a neighborhood just of beloved friends and so I feel really grateful for the place the place where I where I do touch the ground um, and for the history uh, of that neighborhood too when I 
was very young, there were a group of families that were all part of the Catholic worker community in Detroit, and they said, you know, we want to we want to stay in Detroit and we want to raise kids, and how do we make that sustainable? And so we had about 15 families all choose to move on to the same block together. And so there were 20 of us kids uh, growing up on the same block mm-hmm. and all experiencing, you know, not having TV or sharing one car. And our, our parents would take turns who was getting arrested at protests and who was taking the kids home. Wow. And so I feel really grateful to be sort of part of that history also in, in place and, and on this little strip of land. Cool. I, I'm curious, what's the legal status of your chickens? Is, is there any risk of them getting arrested? <laughs> I suppose there could, there, there could be. Um, yeah, it is not uh, technically legal in Detroit yet, though there are, of course, people working on that. Uh, but for a long time, you know, it's real. It's not the sort of situation where anyone would do anything unless your neighbors called and complained. So um, we've pretty intentionally not had roosters to not annoy our neighbors too much. And we give away plenty of eggs. And most of the time, they're pretty well received by kids and neighbors alike. Beautiful. Sounds like you're really rooted in a sense of place. And um, yeah, I think I think part of what intrigues us in this conversation and and why it feels good to be talking to you uh, at this particular moment is that you've recently taken in one of our our babies um, <laughs> I, I'm thinking of the this doesn't happen so much anymore but I know uh, there's a there's a history of of people sometimes needing to make the painful decision to send a child away to live with relatives um, <laughs> because they can't afford to feed that yeah. particular child and uh, that sort of feels like what we've done with G's Magazine uh, mm-hmm. in its move from Winnipeg, Manitoba to Detroit, Michigan. Um, so first of all, thanks so much for, for taking in our, our baby. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we're very proud of this this baby. Um, yeah. We're also curious, I think, about how the move to Detroit will shape uh, G's Magazine's sense of, of voice and place. Maybe just for some folks might not know about G's Magazine. It's a it's a magazine that's been uh, committing holy mischief, kind of camped out on the edges of Christian faith for for some years now. And uh, it's a, it's a place I think not unlike the sort of space we're interested in curating at the Ferment, where where activism and deeply committed, thoughtful faith come together. But yeah, it's, you've gone. We've gone from the prairies to Detroit, and I think. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I, in my sense of Detroit, is kind of one of those places where the the death of the American dream uh, can maybe be seen in sharper relief than than many places, uh, both in terms of the the decay of empire and and what's growing up between the cracks. So, mm-hmm. tell us about Detroit City and and how that sense of place might come up in G's magazine as you have become the the new stewards. Yeah. Um, I, I think Detroit is a really interesting place for it to be housed. I, one reader said recently that, uh, who's Canadian and, and really wrestling with that grief of it leaving Canada, uh, which is a, something I want to keep exploring and talking about. Um, but she said, I'm trying not to think of it as being rooted in the U.S., but it being in Detroit. It's moving from Canada to Detroit. <laughs> um, and that there is, a, there is a sense in which Detroit um, is unique. Uh, and 
I came home to Detroit after college and was part of intentional community here. Um, and a, a big reason was wanting to have Detroit as a teacher and seeing what was happening here as really part of what I wanted to have form who I was. And it, it really was a city that was abandoned by capitalism in so many ways. Industry had left, even sort of government had left, like neighborhoods were really sort of left on their own. But what was coming out of that was really incredible, that it communities had to say, you know, our survival depends on us and how we choose to, to be in this world. And people stopped relying on corporations um, and said, you know, this is a food desert. It's time to start planting gardens. Um, and Detroit is unique in that it's this sort of huge, sprawling city, in part because Henry Ford wanted everyone to have their own house and yard and car. So there's not really apartment buildings. So it's just a huge amount of land. And at this point, about a third of that is vacant land. And so there was tons of room to be able to start mm. putting in urban farms um, and bringing in animals and bees. And, and so people were experimenting with community agriculture in lots of ways of saying, you know, this is a food desert. There's not a single chain grocery store left in the city of Detroit. Um, how do we grow food for one another? And, you know, how do we, how do we make this city beautiful um, when there's not city services to be doing that for us? And, and even, I mean, there were studies done in Detroit around violence and saying, what does it mean to put in a community garden in a neighborhood? And you can see the violent redu reduction in that area. Mm. Um, and, you know, people were getting to know each other. It was the, the elders in the community who knew and remembered how to grow food. Um, and it's the teenagers who are able to, to do a lot of that labor. And so there were sort of new relationships happening that wouldn't normally have happened. Same thing, there was a movement called Peace Zones for Life where people were saying, you know, we're, police aren't going to show up um, and we don't necessarily want to call them anyway. How do we figure out security in our own neighborhoods? How do we create networks of calling one another? And so there were sort of all of these like really interesting questions that were being raised out of community where sort of creativity and imagination and resistance were all just sort of part of daily survival. But then in the last, you know, five or six years, things are also changing really fast. There was a policy in Michigan called emergency management, where if the governor determined that the city was in a state of emergency, they could appoint a leader over your city that was not elected and could trump any other political leader. So we sort of lost our own democratic voice in the city, um, and they could mm. get rid of contracts or make any decisions that they wanted to. So very quickly, things shifted, and emergency management was put onto almost every city in Michigan that had a black majority in the city. Wow. Um, hmm. So with between that and bankruptcy, now there is sort of a flood of money and wealth pouring into the city. Dan Gilbert, who owns the Cleveland Cavaliers basketball team and, and Quicken Loans, has sort of bought up most of downtown, and downtown is very quickly becoming filled with white folks in their 20s and 30s. And this is a company that you know, made its money off of foreclosing homes in Detroit in the mortgage foreclosure crisis and now is mm. pouring money into the city and really structurally pushing poor folks out and people of color 
Um, over the last few years, the city's been turning off water to homes that are $150 behind on their bills. So we've had thousands of households that don't have running water in the city. Um, and the UN has come, and there's been all this organizing of just saying this is you can't you can't turn water off um, for poor folks. That that's that water really is a human right, but it's continuously mm. being a structural policy that is really working to push folks out. And if you don't pay your water bill, it's now put onto your tax bill, and then suddenly within a year you've you've lost your home, even if you've had it for generations. So it feels like a city that both has this real sense of creativity and community and asks really amazing questions about survival and then also a city where it's so impacted by wealth and racism and environmental racism. And I think that as we move forward with cheese, like those those are both things that you want to see and hold in your heart as we're looking at this to sort of be very aware of the systemic injustice around us but also be able to articulate and feel hope and and action amidst that. Mm. So Lydia, uh, an image from your childhood, sitting on the basement steps in the dark, breathing in the smells of Advent, sawdust and glue of homemade crafts, pine scent of the wreath your mother made. Tell us about your childhood Mm -hmm. The routines of liturgy and the routines of justice that you grew up with as Mm. a daughter of Bill and Jeannie Wiley Kellerman. Yeah, I had pretty wonderful parents. Um, That, yeah, speaks to a a deep love of liturgy. Um, my, My mom especially just really sort of tactile in her body, loved worship. And that could both be in a church filled with candles, and it could also be in the woods in the pouring rain. Um, she had a real earth spirituality, but also a love a love of church. And my my dad um, wrote a book about liturgical direct action when I was young, and and he really articulated the way that church happens on the street, um, and that it needs to not be isolated to the buildings, but we need to be calling out the powers and principalities out on the street. And so we grew up um, every year doing, spending our Good Friday liturgy walking through the streets of Detroit and naming where we saw crucifixion today. So maybe it was stopping at the Detroit River and talking about pollution um, or stopping at the Detroit News and talking about the role of media and truth. Um, or stopping at the federal building to to name whatever um, war was happening in that moment. And so faith was always something that was very current, um, very related to to how what was happening in the world, and that and justice could never be separated from that. And yeah, I think I, I think beauty and justice are things that, that both my parents taught me out of the way that we and they um, lived faith in this world. Hmm. Um, there's a line that you wrote about uh, about your mom. Your mom died of cancer when you were still young, and mm-hmm. uh, this this line it it struck me when I read it as as allegorical, perhaps. At least it, it became that for me. I don't I don't know if it was that for you when you wrote it, but mm-hmm. you were saying that we lived with the constant uncertainty 
of whether my mom was living or dying. And uh, I work in an indigenous-led organization where our mother often refers to the earth. And I think that that sense of living with a constant uncertainty about whether our mother is living or dying, I think that, that just, for me, names something about our condition in this this moment. And I, I, I was really moved by the way in which you, uh, you have an essay in G's uh, called What Keeps Us Alive. Uh, and the, the answer to that is, is really a, an answer of joy, but a certain kind of joy that, you know, is, it's a non-escapist joy. It's, it's, a, it's a learning to dance in the face of death, something that you learned from your mother and also from other, you talk about Palestinian children dancing in the face of soldiers. And yeah, I, I'm just, I, it seems to me that you, you're managing to articulate a, a space that's in between or beyond is maybe better, beyond sullenness and superficiality. I, I was listening to uh, Gil Bailey uh, recently giving a talk, and he was, he was talking about characters both in the, in Flannery O'Connor's novel Revelation as well as he was talking about Hamlet and this, you know, Hamlet goes away, gets educated at the university, comes home, and he, he see, you know, he kind of has a larger worldview and he's got his head in his hands as he's listening to Polonius kind of spouting these thin cliches <laughs> about, you know, just be true to yourself. Everything's going to be okay. Um, and he's, you know, there's Hamlet with his head in his hands. And that contrast often that Gil Bailey lifts out between, you know, in, in the face of the world as it really is, to either fly into superficiality or to sink into sullenness. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think your essay about what keeps us alive pointed to something beyond that, hmm. uh, a kind of non-escapist joy. How do you cultivate that? How... Where did you learn that? Who are your teachers? Hmm. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I, I love that line as allegorical, and I, I want to spend more time thinking about it. Um, what I was writing about in that moment um, was how much I was formed during my mom's diagnosis with brain cancer. So she was diagnosed when I was 12 um, and sort of miraculously lived until I was um, 19. Um, but it was a constant up and down and full of surgeries and decisions and um, sort of not knowing, yeah, if she was living or if she was dying. Um, and that was sort of the same moment where I also came into my own understanding of um, politics and activism. It was something that had certainly formed me as a child, but this was the moment where I claimed that as my own work. And so much of that had to do with being so intimately connected with death and seeing how much pain and loss could happen with one life. Um, And so living with that with my mom, um, I was in high school and September 11th happened my sophomore year of high school. And seeing the sort of the the grief and tragedy of people dying, but then how quickly that was manipulated into anger and revenge and more killing. And it just, to see grief twisted that way just made my heart ache for being at home and seeing, yeah, just how, you know, one life could turn a community. And so to, to then be watching bombs be dropped killing thousands didn't make sense in my brain. Um, and so I very quickly jumped on 
every bus I could find to protests around the country um, and really found myself doing a lot of anti-war work. But yeah, I mean, I think that like sense of dying made everything sacred, where every ordinary Mm -hmm. moment became so much more precious. And there wasn't time to waste on not telling one another that we loved one another um, or just to just to be in the moment um, and to to feel that simplicity. And so to think of that um, in the way that you're talking about that is, as Eartha's mother, what if that was our response in the midst of climate change to say that this pain, and I mean, there's just so much fear that is coming and people I think are becoming sort mm. of immobilized and full of grief and despair of saying, oh, you know, we have 11 years and counting to make change and we're not seeing that. But what if that instead made us realize how sacred life is and that we couldn't, we couldn't walk past the daffodil that's coming up in spring without stopping to say, I love you. Mm. And we couldn't, couldn't spend our time doing anything but what brings life and resisting the ways that we're creating death constantly. Um, I think that's really interesting. And and a way of shifting away from sort of the numbness um, and despair into to hope and joy as we resist. Um, and one of the other things that I talked about that with my mom was that she, she was able to find a freedom to die that was also a great, teacher to me that she was even you know as having a community and a marriage and two young kids she also wasn't afraid to die and that left this amazing Mm. freedom to live and to Mm. to make different choices and to 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 feel joy in that midst and so what if there was a way that we were all able to feel a freedom to die within this time where we we need to focus on climate justice like how does our sense and ability to take risks and to change our lives change if we have a freedom to die in that work Hmm. all right half time this is when we open up the virtual guitar case pass around the virtual collection plate if you like what we're doing here think about throwing some money in We do this because we love it, but we also love our families. The hours we put into this podcast are hours we owe to them. They freed us up to do this work. Help us give something back. Throw in a 20, throw in a dollar, it's all good. Just click on the Patreon link. You can make a one-time donation, or you can commit to something regular. Even something small but regular makes a big difference. Regular contributions mean a regular gig for this artist and this preacher. It lets us chase the dream and not the dollar. Enough said. Back to the reason you're here and we're here today. Lydia, you mentioned the uh, the water issues already, uh, but could you tell us a little bit more um, when you're talking about water shutoffs? Mm-hmm. And um, also talk about water discipleship in Detroit. What's going on mm-hmm. with you know, sort of the details of the why and what how people are responding? 
Hmm. Yeah, we're we're facing water issues all over the state. Um, I mean, Michigan sort of being surrounded by the Great Lakes and having twenty percent of the world's fresh water all around us means that we are in the world's gaze for privatization all the time. And so mm. corporations are coming in and for hardly any money are, are piping out our, our water and bottling it. We're an hour away from Flint where the water was, was poisoned and kids are sort of will always be suffering from that. Those decisions are made also under emergency management at the time in Flint. And then in, in Detroit, yeah, thousands of homes have been shut off from water, which means that you can't, you can't bathe, you can't drink fresh water. And, you know, a whole other piece of that is that if you don't have running water in the home, then the state determines that you are not a fit home to have kids in. So oh, they man. can also separate yeah. families um, from their children. So then there's this constant sense of shame and secrets. And, you know, even as media is coming into Detroit a few years ago to try to cover the story, it's also not safe for parents to, to speak out and talk about it. So the resistance in Detroit goes on everything from working on policies against privatization to work on water affordability plans there's an organization here called We the People um, that's in the same building as our, our G's office um, that does water relief for families. So they'll bring water to homes weekly uh, as families need it. You know, the neighborhoods, are people are doing laundry for each other and running hoses down the street so that people have access to water. There were moments where there would be whole blocks with just one or two homes that still had running water. And so those homes would put their hose out, you know, on the sidewalk so that people could come and and get water. And again, it's all, it's all part of sort of the city plan to, to push folks out. So we, the people were um, also doing a lot of community research, um, both at, you know, at hospitals to say like, now we're, we're seeing people come in with illnesses that we haven't seen in decades because, People don't have access to clean water anymore. Um, and how has that changed things for kids and elders and people with medical needs? Um, but they're also going door to door and trying to map where the water shutoffs were and overlay it with the city's map of what cities they have determined are viable, where they want to put money in, and what are areas of the city that they want to sort of close services off to. And you can lay those maps on top of each other and see that the city is very intentional about where they're shutting water off and who they want to sort of to to be pushed out of the city. So the the movement and resistance around that spans from the streets to people's homes to research um, to to be in community. Yeah. So I think as as we've had conversations in Detroit around what watershed discipleship means, what it means to to be rooted in place, to be to be a disciple to to the land that you live on, and to see those in that you're in community with, based on where the rain falls and who shares who shares that water with you. Um, this has certainly become a huge crisis for us in Detroit that we're constantly sort of grappling with and and grieving and taking that outrage into the streets. Hmm. 
Lydia, tell us also about uh, urban agriculture in Detroit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's been a pretty incredible movement. Um, I mean, for a long time, for decades, for sure. In so many ways, Detroit is a city of folks who, who came from the south to the city for, for jobs and so brought with them farming skills. But as as Detroit became more and more of a food desert, people started planting more and more and experimenting with ways that it could not only be uh, food for one another and for community and sharing out of that abundance, but also people are figuring out how to wait, make a living out of it. There's a farmer in this neighborhood who quit his job as a Detroit public school teacher to see if he could make more money farming than he could as a teacher, and he has. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, wow. pretty, pretty remarkable. <laughs> um, but there's also just amazing resources and ways that there there's a organization called Grown in Detroit that just offers incredible resources so that, you know, you sign up as a family for $10 or $20 as a community garden and you get all of your seeds and your transplants and they've got um, classes every week and tool sharing and um, compost um, mm. if, and they and mm. there's thousands of gardens in every neighborhood in Detroit that are that are part of this that when they do mm. they, we've got plant distribution this week and it feels like Christmas in Detroit you know there's just like hundreds of people lining up all talking about what they're going to grow and what happened last year and what they're excited about mm. for this year. And it's just, it really is a cultural community bonding experience in the city. And they also make it so that if you're part of them, you, you can sell at Eastern market and, and other farmers markets, you can bring your vegetables and you know you volunteer two times a year and then you get to sell your fruits and vegetables there. So there is way, there are ways that people are making money. There's groups of, through this organization of, of beekeepers, and they're training more and more beekeepers. Um, so it really is a, a movement. Um, there, there are certainly ways that, you know, corporate interests have tried to come in and sort of take over this and, and put in larger-scale farms in the city just to sort of buy off of the movement. Um, and a lot of, you know, young new folks have moved into the city because of that movement. Um, but it's it's still really strong, and it'll be really interesting to see how that shifts as the city changes more and more. I mean, you ask questions about, like, are our chickens legal? And, you know, people are growing on land that's connected to their home, but they're not, you know, they don't necessarily own that land, and there aren't, you know, necessarily people in the city who are asking questions about permits for chickens and bees. And so it'll be interesting to see how that shifts, um, and there are more and more people who are working on those sort of city ordinances. But yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. We've got a little <laughs> farmers market that we do just in our neighborhood on Wednesday afternoon, where anyone can just come and and bring whatever they're growing and and sell it and redistribute it on our block as a neighborhood. We've been doing that, and it's a, just a great time to be outside and be with one another and delight in the abundance of what grows from the earth. <laughs> so. I am uh, the mother of a five and two year old, as I was mentioning to you before we started. And um, Marcus uh, hears that the G's office is crawling with children. <laughs> talk <laughs> about um, talk about how you're incorporating creativity and justice uh, that also includes children. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so fun. So currently there's four of us who are the sort of part-time staff for G's and three of us have kids that are under six. So last, just <laughs> yesterday we had two, we, all of us were in the, in the office together and we had a two week old and a four month old and we were, you know, talking budgets and stuffing envelopes as both of them were being nursed in the office and um, my six-year-old has claimed a little closet in the office as the kids' room, and there's toys and crayons, and you know we have fish in the office now that the the kids love to feed, and it's really interesting to be working in that situation where we're working around snow days and sick days, but we're really trying to claim that as a gift and to say, you know, what is it? What does it mean to have sort of a varied um, women-focused staff and, and staff that have, have young kids and make that not only work around it, but claim that as part of the gift of the work? Um, I think there are so often ways that in movements, you know, you see 30-somethings just disappear mm-hmm. from meetings. And, you know, it's because the kids are at home or it's too hard to have kids at meetings and... But how do we reclaim thinking about movement and thinking about what's sacred that includes and welcomes children into that? And I think as we think about so many of the issues that G's focuses on, I think that there is a unique focus that uh, mothers and parents and people who are nurturing children, sort of in any definition of how we name and claim family and community, where you're so present to the the moment and the very ordinary things that are happening right before you, but there's also sort of a a real desperate commitment for what the future looks like, and hmm. there's you <laughs> it, it matters um, because you're looking at these small children that you love and wondering what the world's going to be like for them and for their children. Yeah, so it's really fun. I'm really excited to see how how that happens, and and we're just currently working on our our first issue that will be sort of fully coming out of Detroit and we're sort of using the theme of mothering justice again sort of claiming that the gifts that we have of these young children running around and yeah how we how we talk about community and movement and family how we expand those definitions and I don't know how we honor the way that so many activist movements have been run by the fierce power of mothers and parents and mm-hmm. just really wanting to to honor that. I I think that's really true. I I think when we when we first started the the podcast, we were we interviewed more what I would call you know p- people who are famous as thinkers, let's say. And 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 we 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 lined up a fair number of dudes. Um <laughs> and then I I I've, I've noticed I've noticed I've noticed as we've been talking to more activists we're also talking to more women. Obviously there's women that are thinkers and there's men that are activists, but it's it's just been interesting for me to notice that 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 it's been it's been much easier to find a balance of of men and women uh on the show as we've as we've talked to more activists. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure what the date will be when this show goes out, but the day that we happen to be having this conversation is is Maundy Thursday, which is it's interesting to think about heading towards like like that is a it's a moment of a very tangible like it's about it's a moment about food it's about drink mm-hmm. and bread and sitting down together and having a meal, it's it's also 
a movement towards embracing death uh, with yeah. a kind of fierce fearlessness, as we've been talking about in our, our conversation today. And you, you made some reference earlier to being, uh, you know, strongly influenced by your mother uh, and your father as, as people that took you know, liturgy, you know, into their into their lives, into their bodies, um, and into the streets. And yeah, I wonder if if uh, we could kind of close with a question about you've talked about embracing liturgy with with or without the institutional church. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm curious about this is this is a very live question for me in my life. <laughs> of how how much i i continue to try and feed at the at the table inside the institutional church and how, and how much i kind of let go of that and and practice outside i i'm curious how what that what are you doing for monday thursday maybe that's mm. a place to begin mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways i'm i'm more prepared for uh good friday um that as I sort of named earlier, our, our tradition of walking through the streets of Detroit. So I've collected all of these pieces of folks in our community writing about where they see crucifixion happening and, and putting it into a booklet. And tomorrow we'll gather outside in the same parking lot at, in the same soup kitchen that we've been gathering in for, for 40 years uh, and beginning hmm. a walk through through the city of Detroit. It looks like it's going to be very cold and rainy as we as we take those steps. So yeah, I think as I enter this season I'm I'm mindful of, of how much place and this moment in time are connected to my faith and also the the hope and joy of resurrection. And I think that's something that I've always seen in Detroit and something that I believe in and, and love how it's connected to death that you can't you can't get to resurrection without first going to death. That's that's where we stumble upon it is when we're really willing to put our hands in those places and, you know, take our have the women take the the herbs to anoint Jesus in his death. That's where resurrection is found. And and that's certainly something that I see so alive in Detroit today. So we have a we have a habit of ending with a blessing. We also have a habit of tagging on to our our conversations one of Alana's musical gifts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my suggestion uh, we haven't actually talked about this till just now, but my, my suggestion is uh, is a song of Alana's, which is uh, it's called "As the Crow Flies," mm-hmm. um, which seems seems an apt image for. Uh, <laughs> for the journey of G's to uh, from Winnipeg yeah. to Detroit, and this kind of uh, th- th- there's a there's a theme of of crossing borders in the song. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I just wonder, Elena, if you want to share anything about you know where that song came from for you, and you'll you'll have to uh, wait for the episode to come out to uh, to give it a listen. Or, well, I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. you can, there's, there's other places you can find it, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, just any background you want to give on as the crow flies, Elena. Yeah, um, well, I wrote that song actually with a fellow named James LeBlanc down in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And that was, I wrote it quite a long time ago, maybe 12 years ago or something. And I remember finishing, uh, taking, it was half finished really. And I, I remember taking the uh, 
the song in my heart back to this like very cheap motel I was staying at and uh, and just sort of sat in the room by myself and there's uh, in the third verse I kind of traveled to the wailing wall mm. and um, the line is I go to kiss the wall where mothers wail because mm. these lips may never touch the holy grail and out of all the voices that have ever praised who will be the one holding the name and there's Throughout the whole thing, we were working with imagery of flags and borders and just this, these ideas that we construct around, um, you know, and then if you look at a, a map of treaty territory or a map of how people see the river systems and the lakes and how people, you know, uh, I remember hearing about an indigenous man feeling that he had the right to canoe across an entire lake, even though there's this imagined border there. Um, and so that those were mm. images we were certainly working with in the song. So it does, it definitely fits. I think this, <laughs> mm. I didn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't, I didn't know this was the one Marcus thought of, but it does fit. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a favorite. So, uh, yeah, I very much look forward to sharing this conversation with our listeners and, and the song as well. Um, we we have this habit of closing with a blessing. We're a little bit unabashed about about doing that. So I'll just start in. Lydia Wiley Kellerman, may you grow in deep, gut-wrenching, belly-aching joy. Hmm. The joy born of the hip-breaking contractions of grief. May you know the clear-eyed love that sees the world as it is. Sees your neighbors as they are. Sees your enemies as they are. Loving what is. Into becoming what it ought to be. So may it be, so may it be. Strength and beauty on your way. Mm, amen. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Lydia. Thank you. Thank you both. It's been lovely. I won't be restricted by the rules. When the time comes for the leaving, I will go. And out of all the progress, honey, that we've be the one waving the flag I've gained and lost and gained my innocence And time was wasted wondering where it went And out from all the ashes of the deals we've made who will be the one holding the flame? In the sweet by and by, I'll no longer wonder why. But in the meantime, I will rise as the crow.
Thanks for listening. Until next time, breathe consciously and with love. Eat consciously and with love. Tend the creation. Attend the divine. And name the real consciously and with love. Peace and all good.